Welcome to the Gutenberg Podcast, where we discuss the books and ideas which have influenced Western civilization through the curriculum of Gutenberg College. Chris Swanson is back with me today to talk about the transition from the Roman Republic to the Roman Empire. Welcome back, Chris. Thanks, Gil. So last time with Elliot, we talked about Polybius and his observation of various cycles of governments. And Polybius was very interested in exploring why the Roman, he called it the Roman Empire, but he meant the Republic, expanding throughout all of the territory. Polybius was interested in answering the question, why is it so successful? And we briefly discuss large portions, divisions of the history of Rome that are commonly referred to. As we're going to talk about the transition from the Republic to the Empire, and those are technical terms, could you just, in broad strokes, refresh our listeners' memories on how we generally break up Roman history? Sure. So... My understanding is that most historians break it up into a period when there were kings that were in charge of Rome. Mostly they were Etruscan kings from a country to the north. Eventually Rome gets rid of the kings and then the main ruling class is aristocratic and it is made up of a Roman Senate. So the king's period is roughly 750 BC to 500 BC. And then around 500 BC-ish, the Senate takes control, and the Senate is made up of aristocratic families, families who pass down their power and their wealth and their influence from generation to generation. This period is often referred to as the Roman Republic. That period lasts from 500 B.C. to 50 B.C., thereabouts, 50 to 30 B.C., somewhere in that range. And then the empire proper is the period when you have Roman emperors who are more or less in control of the main political decisions of the state. And that's from 50 B.C. until what we refer to as the fall of Rome, however you want to measure that. Mm -hmm. Those are broad strokes. So, And I'm sure that Historians will note that the fall of the Roman Empire is specifically of the Western Correct. Empire because Constantinople sort of is the Eastern half and there's a longer history there. But we're just talking about the Western Empire for our purposes today. Right. So you said that the... Senate was made up of aristocratic families. Last time we talked with Elliot a little bit about how Rome was a mixed constitution, but could you lay out for the purposes of our discussion today how the Roman Republic was organized so that we have the pieces to see what happens as this transition from the Republic to the Empire begins? 
So I'll start by saying that the Roman Republic changed over time, I think. I don't think it was a static situation. So what I'm going to describe is more the late empire period. I don't know all the details of all the intricacies of the changes over the years, but you've got the Senate, which is made up of these aristocratic families. These families are referred to as patricians. Everybody else in Rome who's not a patrician, who's not a noble, is referred to as a plebeian. The plebeians could be wealthy, they could be poor, they could be anywhere in between. So the Senate was a body of the leading patricians. There was also something called the Assembly. The Assembly, I believe, was something like 500 people. Don't quote me on that. I don't know exactly the number is. But they are a body made up of plebeians, and they are the ones that actually make the laws. It is not the Senate that makes the laws. And the people who are serving in the Assembly tend to be wealthy plebeians. There is a group of people called consuls. There were always two consuls at any particular time. And a consul was essentially a general, a war leader, somebody who went out from Rome and fought for Rome or conquered or defended Rome. And they always had two consuls and they only served for a one-year term. And it was a great, great honor to be named a consul if you were a patrician. It was something that everybody was after, and people had to bribe and jockey and persuade their friends and associates in order to get that position. There was also a tribune or tribune, okay? This was somebody who was a plebeian, usually a very influential plebeian, but he was a representative of the rest of the plebeians, he was elected by the assembly, and he had authority in terms of making decisions on the part of the state. The reason why I often think of the Senate being in control, even though the assembly is the one that makes the laws, the Senate is largely in control because of a system called the patronage system. The patronage system, each patrician would have a number of clients and the clients would be plebeians, and there was a very mutually beneficial relationship that they had between the two of them. The patrician would offer services, give money to the plebeian, help them in the court of law if they had, if they had something that happened to them, because only the patricians were allowed to show up in court. And so they would, you know, help them in various ways. But the clients would help the patricians in the assembly. So they would help them get the things that they want passed, be advocates for the interests of their particular patron. And so you had this, this very loyal relationship. They were very loyal to each other. The clients of the patron were always very much aligned towards that patron's interest, and the patron always wanted to help the plebeians. And so in this way, the patrician class was able to, in some sense, control the direction of Rome by influencing things the way they want them through their clients. And each patrician would have a number of clients. So it was, it was an interesting way to join the wealthy noble class with the plebeian class. It was a very, very unique relationship that smoothed conflict between those two groups. So now that we have the structure of the Roman government, mm-hmm in mind, what changes start to take place in that transition between the Republic and the Empire? First of all, when do these changes start taking place and what are the nature of those changes? 
I think there's a variety of changes and they start happening over a period of time. And the kinds of changes that are happening in Rome, again, this, this is not something that happens overnight. It's over a period of 100 years. So I think going back to, say, for instance, 150 BC, one of the significant things that happens is Rome finally, in what is referred to as the Third Punic War, defeats Carthage. And Carthage is one of the biggest, most influential powers on the Mediterranean Sea. And Rome is also a very influential power on the Mediterranean Sea. And they were always at odds with each other. And Rome finally goes in and completely destroys them, sacks the city, kills everybody. They don't kill everybody, but they, you know, the story is they salt the earth, essentially make Carthage no longer a power in the Mediterranean. Now, there are still lots of powers east in the Persian Empire and some of those areas, but in the Mediterranean, Rome now more or less is ruling supreme. And one of the impacts of that is prior to the defeat of Carthage, Rome lived constantly in a state of concern, a posture of defense, a posture of fear that they were going to be overthrown or destroyed. During one of the Punic Wars, a famous general named Hannibal had come through Italy and and gone through and conquered wide, huge sections of the countryside. There was very much a sense in Rome that we are vulnerable. We need to stick together. We need to be strong. We need to join together to defeat our enemy once Carthage is destroyed. And at the same time, Rome moves a little further east. They start moving into Greece and some of the other areas over there, Macedonia, which had been Alexander's empire. Once these major events have happened and enemies have been conquered, Rome is now sort of in a position of being able to sit on their laurels. They are no longer in this great fear of being destroyed. And I think that's a that's a big shift. Mm-hmm. I feel like I feel like the US had a similar shift when the Soviet Union was conquered. Mm-hmm. I mean, prior to the Soviet Union, the United States was in the state of concern and fear that there was going to be a nuclear war and after the fall of the Berlin Wall and the fall of the Soviet Union, things changed a little bit mm-hmm. in the way we thought about ourselves mm-hmm. and our concern about world affairs. Mm-hmm. And I think the same thing happens with Rome. And so This is a big change. In addition to that, there's a lot of new wealth because they're starting to conquer some of these places. They're bringing in money. Money always changes a society. Now you've got lots of luxury. There's going to be fights over who gets the money and where the money goes. There's a lot of tax money that's coming in. Who gets the taxes? The patricians obviously want all the tax money to flow into the Senate. But the people who are out there collecting the taxes, these are wealthy plebeians, they call them knights, they would like to keep a lot of that money for themselves. So there's tensions and problems with with that as well. There's also sort of an influx after they start moving into Greece and Macedonia, there's an influx of Greek ideas. And you have to think of the Romans, especially prior to say 150 BC, they were built on these Roman virtues, things like courage and frugality, not spending a lot of money, prudence, modesty, piety for the gods, liberality towards those who needed it, and and especially service to Rome, hard work. Those were the kind of virtues that encapsulate the Roman statesman, you know, the strong Roman who is going to lead Rome forward. And Greek views and ideas were more individualistic. It's sort of like 
How am I going to live in the world? How am I going to make the world work for me? Now, that's not all Greek philosophies, but there were a number of Greek philosophies that had that perspective. Whereas Rome, it was more, what can we do for the state? What is the best life that we can live that is going to strengthen Rome? Mm-hmm. That kind of a thing. So those were some of the kinds of changes, some of the influences that were starting to have an impact. It's subtle. It's slow. There were certainly a number of people that were concerned about it and raising it as a big problem. A lot of the Roman historians talk about this period and say things started to change here. Do you think one of the reasons that Rome starts to rest on its laurels is because the lack of competition meant that there was less innovation? That's a great question. Like military innovation or technological innovation or... I mean, I'm sure all kinds of innovation, right? If you have somebody who can rival you, I have to figure out how to just keep this edge against them. Right. And when your major competitor goes away, why do I need to keep an edge? Right. I know. I think, I think that's probably true. I mean, I imagine that there is probably a lot of, you know, creativity, a lot of thinking about how we we're going to conquer our enemies, you know, and the Romans were constantly praising and rewarding those who had new and creative and amazing ideas. The general who won the war, of course, was always lauded and given what is referred to as a triumph. They would get a walk through the city of Rome and people would throw mm-hmm. things at him and everybody would praise him. So, but again, I'd have to think a little bit more about what those innovations were, but sure. I suspect that there's probably some sure. changes along those lines. I mean, there was plenty of innovations later as well, because sure. the other thing that you know drives innovation is personal ambition. Right. I want to bring something up now, maybe put a pin in it and come back to it when we start to compare Rome to the American situation, our current situation, and why understanding the transition for Rome into a dictatorship might be relevant for us. And what I want to bring up is the notion that when you don't have the kind of competition between world powers like Roman Carthage or the United States and the Soviet Union, then the whole world is kind of centered on the one country, on Rome or the United States. Right. And this need for control has a lot to do with maintaining the status quo. Right. Because certain people are in power or because this group is ascendant or because this philosophy is the right one or the most popular one, it's resistant to change Mm -hmm. in a way that when there is this external threat, there's sort of an amenability Mm -hmm. to all kinds of different perspectives because how are we going to fix the problem? Right. We're open culturally to a lot of different ideas because we're open militarily or geopolitically to solutions that are going to help us with this problem. Yeah. And I wonder if that stagnation is part of the trouble that Mm -hmm. came on Rome is when they felt they could rest on their laurels, 
why change things? Yeah. And that has all kinds of corrupting influence on what people are willing to accept culturally that flows out into the nature of life under yeah that's that a government. that's a really good point i i think also in terms of sort of an inward versus outward focus mm-hmm. if there is an outward enemy everybody has to join together mm-hmm. to fight the enemy if there is no outward enemy then everybody looks inward and fights among themselves right for the stuff right and now all of a sudden Rome is no longer has a huge powerful enemy and everybody can start looking inward and then they start fighting over what's there and all the new money and all the new ideas and so on and so forth. Things start to significantly change. So the next, I would say, milestone in this transition from the Republic to the Empire are the Gracchi brothers. Would mm-hmm. you tell us about the Gracchi brothers and how do they change things in Rome such that we step towards the Roman Empire? Sure. So Gaius and Tiberius Gracchus were elected as tribunes. Okay, so tribune was elected by the assembly, representative of the plebeians. And I, I believe it was Tiberius was elected first. And... What Tiberius noticed was that there was some reforms that were needed for the sake of the plebeians. There was a there was a, a number of problems in Rome. I don't know of how much detail I want to get. They were land problems, for instance, who got the land and who farmed the land. There were citizenship problems, who got to be a citizen and who didn't get to be a citizen. There were tax problems. There were soldiers that were going out and fighting for a long, long time, and if they died, they might lose their land. There was a lot of debt and and finance problems. They weren't like modern, you know, finance problems that they still had, you know, money issues and so on and so forth. So there were a lot of issues that were existing in Rome, and there was a lot of pressure being put by the populace on Rome. So again, here we are, we're, we're inward focusing, right? What is it that the plebeians need? And Tiberius proposed a number of reforms. And the thing that is really interesting about Tiberius was that he was successful in getting the reforms through the assembly against the wishes of the Senate. Okay, so recall, as I said earlier, mostly the assembly went the way of the Senate because of this, mm-hmm. these patrician relationships, these client relationships, and so on and so forth. This was one of the first times where some major reforms went through against the wishes of the Senate, and the Senate didn't know what to do. So it turns out that there's this skirmish in Rome, and I believe, I don't know which one... I don't know which one dies in a skirmish, and one of them is is outright murdered. But both of them push through reforms. First it was Tiberius, and then later, after Tiberius was killed, Gaius pushes through reforms. It's a similar kind of a story. The Senate is losing power. They recognize they're losing power. They're not sure what to do about it. And ultimately what happens is the Gracchi brothers are killed, And in one case, many followers of the Gracchi brothers are also killed. So there's like a little mini war inside the center of Rome, if you will. So I think this is really, really significant because here we have a situation where 
lawfully things were moving the way they were supposed to. But in terms of power structures, the Senate felt like they were losing control and they resorted to violence in order to solve their disputes. And I think that violent action opened the door to further violence in the future. Yeah. You can tell me you don't know the answer to this, but did the Gracchi get the reform passed legally while they were violating other norms and things? So, for instance, if you had more conservative Romans looking at the Gracchi, would they have condemned them, even though everything was technically by the book, for violating some moray that Roman citizens should uphold? Or do you think that the Gracchi's were more or less legitimate in how they pursued their ends? Boy, that's a good question. I don't know. I'm going to say something, but I don't know the details. I will say that Rome is a place where things are done because of relationships. Mm -hmm. There's votes and there's an assembly and the assembly is representative of the people. But a lot of it is so-and-so owes me this favor. Mm -hmm. This person's on my side Mm -hmm. and our family goes way back. Mm -hmm. They really should side with me because I have a lot of things that I can give them and a lot of power that they can get. Mm -hmm. So there's there's all this power relationships and power Mm -hmm. structures that are going on. So my guess... And again, I'm not a Roman historian, so you really need to find somebody who knows what's going on. But my guess it would be something like there was all this jockeying behind the scenes for power and influence Mm -hmm. and talking with people in the assembly and trying to persuade them of this, that, and the other. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's the backroom deals. I don't know. But it's all very personal. Yes. And it was all very family-oriented because everybody was part of a particular family and had a long history with their family and relationships between clients and patricians. Yeah. It's when we look at American history, there are certain things that happen that there's an open question, right? Was this justice sort of winning out despite the rudeness of certain people or should they not have done this at all? Yeah. You know, that question is often felt very personally because of the result ending up favoring some side or the other. But I think in this case, you were talking about the violence that the Senate felt free to use. And that's something new that's right. going to keep coming back. Right. Right. So what's the next step in the march towards the empire after the Gracchi. Yeah, I think the next step is introduction of a couple of very, very well-known Roman statesmen, Marius and Sulla. Now, their names are much longer than that, but they're often known by (laughs) Marius. So they all have three or four names. And Marius, Marius is, in some sense, he is a supremely successful general. He is just very, very smart in the field. He, he is very disciplined in the field. All of his soldiers are very loyal to him. He makes some innovations as well. For a long time, the only people that could fight in the Roman army were people who had enough money to buy their own armor and weapons. So you had to be, essentially, you had to be a landowner who had enough resources that you could actually 
buy these sorts of things and then you could go fight for Rome. Well, over time, a lot of Roman soldiers have been killed. There have been a number of battles where the Roman soldiers are wiped out. They move north. There's a huge loss in Germany. Marius comes up with the idea of Rome bringing in poor people and giving them armor and training them and bringing them into the field. And this is a very successful approach because you get a lot more people. You can bring in a lot more people. The other thing is you can bring in people who aren't specifically or strictly Romans. You can get some of the Latin people who are nearby and some of the other surrounding areas. They can come and fight for you as well. So it's sort of the beginning of a mercenary army. And one of the things that happens is the loyalty of the army becomes associated to some extent with Marius personally. Part of that is because of the way they pay them. I mean, Rome pays them, but Marius, if he wins, he distributes a lot of the wealth to the soldiers. So all of a sudden the soldiers are like very, very friendly towards Marius. Mm -hmm. He wins some major, major important battles. He gets himself elected consul like five or seven times. I can't remember the number, but a lot of times. And normally if you're elected consul, you're only consul once. You're not supposed to take consul multiple times. Marius is also not from one of these really, really famous, wealthy patrician families. Mm -hmm. So here we've got this guy who's rising because of his, his success in the field, and he becomes very important. And he's got a young protege, Sulla. And Sulla also wants to make a name for himself. And, and here it is. It's this ambition this personal ambition between Marius and Sulla. Marius starts taking some of Sulla's, you know, successes to himself. He says, hey, look, I won this war. And Sulla was like, you didn't do anything. I was the guy, I was the guy that won this war, right? And uh, Sulla then wants to get himself assigned to head east because there's this, this new threat, this Mithridates fellow from the east who is posing this gigantic threat out there. And Sulla gets himself appointed and Marius is like, no, we don't want Sulla to go. And Sulla gets really angry and he goes anyway, right? While Sulla is gone east, Marius is concerned with the influence that Sulla is gaining and he kills a bunch of Sulla's friends and compatriots. And when Sulla returns, he comes with his whole army. And he comes and he goes and he kills a bunch of his political opponents. Now we've got Marius and his group kill a bunch of Sulla's opponents. Sulla comes back. By this time, Marius is dead because he's so old. He's died of natural causes. Sulla comes back and he kills like 10,000 political opponents in Rome. So he, he basically completely wipes out the opposition, killing all these people. This is huge. He sets up the Senate, declares himself dictator for a period of time. He restores all of the power back to the Senate. He removes any reforms that Marius may have made for the plebeians. He was very vicious. He was very power hungry. He was very ambitious. He killed a lot of people. And killing one's political opponents in the city is a huge, huge major step here as well. Right. Continuing in that path that was started with the Gracchi brothers. Yeah. So Julius Caesar is famous for crossing the Rubicon, but some folks who are persnickety will point out he wasn't the first one. That's right. He was not this. the first one to bring an army into Rome, which was definitely against the law right, to bring right. an army to Rome. So the taboo is sort of reinforced for Julius Caesar because we have 
right the trauma of sola coming Absolutely. and doing this thing and there's a generation going that's never going to happen again who oh boy so and the senate is is deathly afraid of that happening anybody in the city is going to be deathly afraid because what if they're on the wrong side of that mm-hmm. they're going to lose their life their family everything sola you said declares himself dictator now In Rome, there was this political position of dictator. Right. Essentially, it's emergency powers. We need you to save the city of Rome itself. Famously, Cincinnatus was this figure who took up the powers of dictator and crushed Rome's enemies and then gave that power back to Rome without any sort of fight. So there is a position of dictator, and it seems like Sola is using the pretense of that position. Interestingly, at the end of Sola's career, he does step down. He does. And so there is a political pretense that he's a legitimate dictator Mm -hmm. in some sense. Mm -hmm. So Sola steps down of his own accord, presumably goes off and has the rest of his life. And what of the generation after him? So the next generation is probably much more familiar to people who have heard about Rome. It's a set of three military generals. One of them is Pompey. Another is Crassus, who was super wealthy. And the last one, famously, was Julius Caesar. Mm -hmm. And these three guys form a union. They referred to it as a triumvirate. So Pompey becomes famous because he is also a very, very successful military commander, as is Julius Caesar. Julius Caesar is successful up in Gaul and among the Germans. He goes into Britain. Pompey is very successful in Spain. Pompey also, I believe, was super successful in ridding the Mediterranean of pirates, which was a huge, huge problem because all the trade was dependent on being able to get your ships back and forth across the Mediterranean. There were a lot of pirates and Pompey Mm -hmm. goes out and he basically wipes all the pirates out. They are very wealthy. They are very, very popular because of their successes. Crassus is incredibly wealthy. It's not because of his military prowess, but because of his savvy, his business savvy, essentially, Mm -hmm. you know, not so savory business Mm -hmm. practices, but he's very, very wealthy. And the three of them are so popular and so powerful and so wealthy that they form this triumvirate And essentially, because so many people owe them and so many people see them as being powerful, the decision-making power of the state gloms onto them. What they want, in some sense, is going to happen. Mm -hmm. The Senate, those that aren't on their side, are seeing the power of the Senate slipping away because you've got these guys that just have so much, the plebeians are on their side because they're so popular. So the Senate has basically lost control. Now this thing breaks down. It starts to break down with Crassus because Crassus tells his buddies, Pompey and Caesar, he says, I want to be elected consul. This is a great position to have, very famous. So they say, okay, yeah, let's work to have Crassus elected consul. Mm -hmm. He gets elected, he goes east, he's going to conquer in the east, but he's a terrible general, (laughs) absolutely wretched general. And he loses all of his Roman troops and is killed in the process. 
<laughs> so one of the three triumvirate is gone. Uh-huh. And guess what happens to the last two? Well, we, we know from Julius Caesar that Julius Caesar defeats Pompey eventually. Yes, exactly. That's exactly it. I mean, you cannot have two people sharing power at that level. Yeah. Ultimately, they're going to go head to head, and they do. And this creates civil war. I mean, it's mm-hmm. huge. Pompey's got an army very loyal to him. Caesar's got an army. It's loyal to him. And so now we have, for the first time, two Roman armies in pitched battle fighting each other for control over the state of Rome. This war lasts actually for a long time, but eventually Caesar comes out on top. He, He kills Pompey. Caesar comes back. He's incredibly popular. He puts on games. He puts on spectacles. He gives land to people. He tackles debt problems. He actually changes the number of the people in the Senate from 600 to 900. And strangely, the 300 that got added were all his friends. Right. Right. (laughs) So he's really taking control here. He claims that he is dictator like Sulla did, Mm -hmm. but it doesn't look like he's going to be stepping down the way Sulla did. Yeah. Yeah. So occasionally I pinch hit for the tutors here at Gutenberg. Mm -hmm. And this quarter... I got to lead a discussion on Shakespeare's Julius Caesar. Oh, yeah. That's a great play. It's interesting perspective to think about the narrative of that play with this background. Because your explanation of this triumvirate and the power that it wielded, by this time, essentially the people controlling things are these three men and then eventually just, just the one easy. man. Right. So the Senate doesn't have the football anymore. Right. And so their plan to sort of restore things is in some ways lacking political awareness And so there's a kind of futility that that adds to the backdrop of that play that's very interesting to consider. Yeah, well, the Senate, I mean, what is it that the Senate doesn't have that Caesar and Pompey had? An army. Right. Right. (laughs) And at this point, the guy with the winning army is the one that is winning. And the Senate believes erroneously that if we just kill Caesar... Things will go back to right. this republic. Right. We can put the genie back in the bottle. Right. And they can't. Yeah. I mean, they kill Caesar. Right. That works, you know, et tu brute, the whole thing, right? right? You know? Well, um, one of the things that I brought up in the discussion that I think is more reflective of Shakespeare's English love of monarchy than it is necessarily of the Roman reality. Right. Is that I think there's a case to be made that Julius Caesar in the play realizes that he's sort of the linchpin for the whole country. And you just see little, you see little bits of pressure sort of escaping. You see his humanity come out just a couple of times Mm -hmm. but the rest of the time he has to hold all of rome on his shoulders he does and whether i think that julius caesar in shakespeare's play there's an argument to be made he's a very noble figure right and that may not have been so true of the historical julius caesar 
But Julius Caesar, when he is ascendant and sitting atop of Rome as dictator, he is holding all of Rome. He is. He really is. And so when Caesar gets removed, what are the consequences of that? And how do we finally put the nail in the coffin of the Republic and bring in the Empire finally? Well, as you might expect, things do not go back to the old Senate ways, Mm -hmm. right? There are a number of players on the scene at this point. One of them is Caesar's right-hand man, Antony, from the Antony and Cleopatra story. Mm -hmm. Another one is a guy named Octavian, okay, who is Julius Caesar's nephew, but he is also named as Caesar's heir. Mm -hmm. So Caesar passes down authority to Octavian as his heir. Another guy, I'm not going to say much about, a guy named Lepidus, who was also very powerful at the time. So there's these three guys that Mm -hmm. created a second triumvirate. Right. Then there's senators. Cassius and Brutus are some senators, and they actually do control some armed forces for Rome. The details of the interworkings between Octavian and Lepidus and Antony and Brutus, they're constantly changing sides and making... Uh treaties, I'll join you so we can kill this guy, and so on and so forth. And ultimately, in the end, it comes down to Octavian versus Antony. Mm -hmm. And Octavian defeats him, but Antony escapes, and he goes to Egypt, and there's Cleopatra. Octavian chases him down. Finally, Antony is defeated, and Cleopatra is defeated. And Octavian takes the entire treasury of Egypt, And he brings it back to Rome so that he is actually wealthier than the rest of the people in Rome Uh by a long shot. So Uh he's got tons and tons and tons of money. And he can use that money to control people. Octavian now names himself Augustus. Mm-hmm. So he is Augustus Caesar. He claims to be dictator. Very, very cleverly, he reassembles the Senate. Mm-hmm. And he grants the Senate a certain amount of power, but he himself ultimately controls the Senate. Mm -hmm. And the Senate changes to an administrative body, which executes the will of Augustus. Mm -hmm. So once Augustus is in power, that's it. Right. There's no more debate. All the power lies in his hands. He calls himself not just emperor, but also high priest. He essentially takes all the reins of the power of everything. You might imagine at the time people experiencing the turmoil of three generations of civil war being relieved. Yeah. That somebody has come along and held it together. There's an interesting question there with regard to how noble Augustus is, Mm -hmm. because you're disposed to think of him as being noble because all of the chaos is stopping. And yet there's also, he's doing it through tyranny. Essentially, (laughs) so how I think closer to our time somebody like Napoleon Mm -hmm. comes in and resolves the tensions 
that were part of the French Revolution. Mm-hmm. You know, he stops all the guillotining and the drownings and the horrible things that went on in that revolution. And yet a lot of the West's narrative about Napoleon is that he was a tyrant and that he needed to be stopped by the folks who ended up allying against him to prevent him from taking over all of Europe. Yeah. And so there is this troublesome peace that comes when you have to have somebody who is violent enough that they can just stop everybody fighting. Yeah, well, I I think that's a great comparison. An empire. It's a a really great comparison because once you get the situation isn't so chaotic, every state depends almost completely on the behavior and belief of the populace in the forms of government and in the traditions of their state. The stability of a state is dependent 100% on the populace being willing to participate and obey the law. Because as soon as a significant portion of the populace is no longer willing to abide by the traditions and the rules, then there's just not enough force in the world unless it turns into civil war to make that happen. It completely broke down in the French Revolution. Everybody was killing each other and fighting. A sense of law and order broken down in Napoleon. You needed a strong man mm-hmm. to take upon himself all of the authority and all of the order. Mm-hmm. And people were really desperate for somebody who could do that. Mm-hmm. And Napoleon had that character. He had that ability. He had right. that power. He had that military strength. Augustus was the same kind of a character. Mm-hmm. He was very savvy. He was very clever. And he took upon himself all of that power, and people were like, we're sick and tired of the Civil War Uh and the killing. And I think once he became essentially emperor, there was a long period of peace, one of the most prolific and productive periods in Roman history. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, Chris, we have explored a lot of history, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. uh, but we have been teasing that one of the points Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. uh, aside from the interests that these events have in themselves but one of the values of thinking about all of this history is to think about the parallels between the disintegration of the roman order Mm -hmm. and what that could tell us about our current situation in our world and particularly in the United States, what can we learn from this history as we are thinking about the United States? Sure. I just want to, before I start here, I want to give a brief caveat. I mean, I'm looking at Roman history from my own particular perspective, and I'm sure in every situation, there's a lot of complexity. Yeah. And I'm picking out particularly salient details to emphasize and focus on and telling a picture as to how I put it together. 
And there are a lot of details that I have left out. So, you know, there's room for interpretation as to what actually happened in history and, and what was going on there. But there were a number of things, I, and a lot of these things are pretty well agreed upon. There are a lot of features of Rome that are somewhat similar to what's going on here. There was a lot of concern about a change in the moral character of the populace, uh -huh. a breakdown in that, in the Roman virtues, in frugality. I mean, how is it that the Senate is so wealthy and mm -hmm. so grabbing of wealth? There's so much tension over money. The proper Roman should be somebody who makes a lot of money on their farm or, or whatever, but they're very willing to give it away uh -huh. and to help people around them and don't hoard the money and it doesn't matter to them very much. That was not the case, uh -huh. right? I think everybody's always influenced by money, but right. it became much more significant. More and more people were willing to do more and more terrible things to get it. I think that that is happening in the United States. I mean, it's always been the case, right? right? But certainly the populace is more enamored in some sense with the materialism, the change in the moral fabric, right. concern about the state as opposed to concern about the individual, sort of what's in it for me as opposed to what's in it for the country. Some of those features seem to me to be somewhat similar. The fact that the political system broke down and there was no ability to find a compromise through discussion and right. debate. That strikes me as being somewhat similar. Now, the direction that Rome went with that ended up being violent. When the Senate or various powers that be couldn't get their way, the solution was killing one's political opponents. Yeah. Now, that is not a particularly acceptable form of political resolution in the country at the moment. And every country, every state has their own path. I have no idea how the U.S.'s future is going to look and whether things are going to start turning violent or not. But it is certainly a possibility. If it does happen, it would start small in small areas, but it could grow, yeah. it seems like, as a possibility. And so it seems like the the virtue of holding to discussion and debate and compromise is to be valued over violence. Absolutely. Because we know where that ends up. Yes. Once it starts going down that path, you're in trouble. Because once the door has been opened, then in future debates and future uh, situations, then it is that much easier to resort to violence again. So now, there were some very significant differences in Rome that I think are not the case here. At least, I don't see them being the case at all. Sure. And that has to do with the military. The military definitely became loyal to various generals. And violence was a more acceptable form of activity in Rome yeah. than it is here in the United States. And the military was very much loyal to those generals. I don't, I don't see that in any form whatsoever at all. You know, the military is definitely not loyal to a particular individual. So I have no idea, you know, yeah. how these things are going to work out. Yes. So I suppose we leave our listeners with some places where they can explore to start thinking about questions related to our current situation. Right. We have these events, we have the Gracchi, we have Crassus, Maris and Sola. Maris and Sola. 
all of those figures, there are these moves that get made politically and militarily that have significance. And I think if folks are very interested in the preservation of the United States, you know, Roman history was very important to the founders of the United States because here is the history of what happens when you have a complicated system like this and Mm -hmm. what can we learn from this. Absolutely. So studying this history and maybe understanding some of the questions that we who are not (laughs) Roman historians can answer, hopefully we've given a little taste of how that study can be valuable. Yeah, absolutely. I just want to bring up one last point that I forgot to mention that I think is really fascinating, and that is the documentarian status of the United States government. Mm -hmm. The government of the United States is founded on a single document, the Constitution, That was not the case for Rome. It was more tradition and ways of behavior. They did have laws that were written and those sorts of things like that. But the Constitution of the United States, as long as the populace, and again, I'll just bring this out, if everybody agrees to certain things, if we can hold in common a sense of, yes, the Constitution is sort of inviolable or something uh-huh. like that. You can uh-huh. change the Constitution according to sure. certain rules, but as long as we are not throwing it out, right. that is huge benefit in my mind yeah. in terms of controlling the misuse of power and because there's a lot of checks and balances sure. and various sure. other aspects there that Rome simply didn't have. So I don't know. I think that is an interesting point as well. That's a positive in our favor at this point in time. Well, Chris, I think this has been a fascinating discussion, maybe even despite the fact that we're not giving out the answers, (laughs) that maybe we're raising some questions and hopefully that prompts folks to go and maybe deal with some of the Roman historians who talk about these events and do some studying of their own on what does this mean and what is the relevance from that system to our system, right? or f- just thinking about human nature as they relates to governments in general. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If you folks have questions or comments about something we've talked about in this episode, you can email us at podcast at gutenberg.edu. Thanks for coming back on the show, Chris. It was really fun. I enjoy talking about this stuff, and I appreciate interacting with you about it, Gil. Great. We will be back in a couple of weeks to continue discussing the ideas and books that have shaped Western civilization through the curriculum of Gutenberg College. 